Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. For God's sake. <laughs> Bloody hell, Tony Hadley. Chips and rice. Ooh. Where's the plant that came out of the pot? Stop it! Almost recovered from Barcelona. of the iconic roles that today's special guest has performed over the years. John Chalice is one of the UK's most familiar faces and voices, as well as treading the boards in an extensive range of theatre roles all around the world for many years. His profile soared to new giddy heights when he was cast as dodgy second-hand car dealer Boise in the massively successful Only Fools and Horses that ran for 22 years, later getting top billing in his very own spin-off that ran for a further four for Green Green Grass. In recent years, he's probably better known as Monty Staines, the hapless husband of Joyce Temple Savage in ITV's Benny Dorm. Whilst behind the scenes, he's written a number of novels as well as his two-part autobiography. Well, we at SNS Towers couldn't resist a gossipy chinwag with the man himself. So, after buying a used car from a dubious dealer in Lewisham, but had definitely seen better days, <laughs> we drove to the Kenton Theatre in Henley to catch one of the dates in his extensive UK memoir stage tour, Only Fools and Boise. Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to Mr John Chowers. <laughs> So, John Chalice, welcome to SNS Online. We've been chasing you for a tidy while, but clearly you can run uh, much faster than us. Uh, yes, well, you've cornered me here in the Kenton Theatre in uh, Henley on Thames. Absolutely. So let's talk about that. Uh, why are we both in the Kenton Theatre in Henley? Well, I'm doing a, I do a one-man show called uh, Only Fools and Boise. Um, it's not only about uh, Only Fools and Boise. It's, it's about, uh, it came on the back of my autobiography, really. And I've been on cruise ships uh, doing a little show, but not as long as this one. And the story seemed to work very well. People seem to enjoy it. So I sort of, uh, it's evolved into a, a stage show, a two-hour show. And it uh, seems to be very popular. More people are coming to see it than, uh, than did at the beginning. And they keep asking for it, which is uh, wonderful for me. Um, mm. Very exciting. Well, I was one of your early attendees in 2006, I think. I went to um, the one in Colchester. That was, it was very good then. Oh, t- 2016. Yeah. 16, you said 6. Did I say 6? Don't can't be that old. <laughs> <laughs> just to say that my head is currently full of your life. I've just finished the second volume of your wonderful autobiography, uh, laughing my way through all the reruns of Only Fools and Horses and your very own successful spin-off series, Green Green Grass, uh-huh. with the lovely and effervescent, I never knew she wasn't, uh, Miss uh, <laughs> Sue Holders. Um, plus, you're riding high again with Benny Dorm. Yes. This, is, this is outrageously good stuff. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's scandalous, really, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, very lucky. Uh, and it, it all came about, really, because uh, Darren Litton, who writes Benidorm, uh, wrote, uh, I think, a couple of episodes, or an episode and a half or something, of Green Green Grass, the spin-off series. I didn't know that. Yeah, he did, yeah. And that's when we met. He'd been writing before then for Catherine Tate. And uh, ah. and John Sullivan sort of said, oh, come along and, uh, and uh, write some of this, which he did, and uh, seemed to work very well. And... Um, that's interesting. Oh. I never knew John Sutherland handed the reins to anybody else at any point. Well, no, he got to a stage where he'd always oversee it, and he wrote most of it. But he got into a space where he was trying to encourage young writers, including his own sons, as a matter of fact. And, um, and some of it worked, some of it didn't. But, but you know, he was, he was such, so rare, John Sullivan. Um, it always came back to him, you know, because that, the, the plotting and... Uh, yeah. And the stories that uh, he told were absolutely brilliant. Plus, plus all the great jokes, of course. And um, and, and he was uh, one of Darren Litton's heroes, really. So, uh, so, well, I so I, we I, we can both understand yeah, that. Yeah, well, it's, it's very unusual, very lucky to have been part of it all, really. Uh, you know, Benny Dawn's been just a success. And about the seventh, about the fifth or sixth series, he, I remember he wanted me to go. Uh, go out there and do some episodes but I couldn't for whatever reason uh, though I sounded I thought it sounded a fantastic job mm. and eventually um, in the seventh series I went out and did a couple of episodes as a sort of uh, 
slightly dodgy property dealer. Yes! Five grand! Look, shut up, he'll hear you. Oh, God, you're brilliant! <laughs> Don't you be long and make sure he keeps his hands to himself. Oh, please, you're joking. I reckon we can squeeze another ten grand out of this one before he finds out the property's worthless. Another ten grand? Oh, yeah. No buffet at Mr Wu's for us tonight. We are going a la carte at the China Garden. <laughs> And then, Monty Staines. We just finally discovered Monty his Staines, last name. Yes. Does he? Yes. <laughs> oh, yes, I thought he would. Yes. No, all those lovely jokes. Yes. Anyway, um, anyway, he said, oh, uh, same time next year. And I went, oh, brilliant. Thanks for it. Because it's, mm. you know, you go, you go out there for a couple of weeks. So, And it's, it is like a holiday, really. Yeah. It's just such fun to do. Such a great oh. cast of people. <laughs> Let's take it back uh, initially, yes we do, uh, to your early sort of salad days. Um, you didn't come from an artistic or theatrical background at all, is that right? No, no I didn't. Um, my mother um, came from Bath and in Somerset and um, she was part of an amateur company there who played at the assembly rooms in Bath. But uh, the war came, suddenly the theatre closed and uh, she'd met my father by that time who was working in the Admiralty. And I came along the first year of, uh, of marriage. Uh, and so she never went back to, uh, to the theatre. But uh, later on, she became, um, she became a leading light in an amateur company. Mm. And apparently she was the one who encouraged you to get into acting when it was quite oh. an alien thing for your dad, apparently. Oh, yes. My dad, my dad was, uh, well, it's, it's the old cliche, he never thought it was a proper job. You know, not a job at all, in <laughs> fact, really. Uh, because he was a self-made man, you know, and um, he'd... he'd uh, Grown up in uh, working-class Sheffield, his, his dad was a steel worker. Uh, but he was blessed with sort of ambition and, uh, and a brain. He got a scholarship to grammar school and, uh, and he started at the bottom of the civil service and worked really hard and finished up at the top of the civil service, you know. Um, and so he, he rather hoped his son would um, be one of those people, you know, to, to work really hard. But I was exactly the reverse, really, because I didn't work hard at all. I just mucked about most of the time. And uh, he... He threw his hands up in despair, and uh, I didn't pass as many uh, GCEs as I was supposed to. I remember him reading the results and stomping off in a bit of a time. Wasted all that money, you know, and all that. But but um, I was temperamentally unsuited, really, to, to a proper job. And so I sort of ran away and uh, joined a children's theatre. Um, you know, like like people say, run away and join the circus. You know, it was that. And I, and I was on tour um, there in a different town every day. Fabulous! So it's like rep and well, no, no, just just playing schools, okay. schools and different a different town every day, as I say. And I love being on the road. So this is how you got um, your 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 training, if you like. You didn't actually go to drama school, is that right? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I I could have done, I suppose, if I if I'd concentrated on it. But uh, mm. I hated the idea of going back to school. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to get out of there, get out of uh, you know where I'd I'd grown up um, because I didn't have much in common with. Uh, with the uh, the young people there, I don't mean I'm okay, but I I always knew there was something else uh, to do, yeah. and um, so I never went to drama school. No, um, yeah, obviously f- hasn't made much of a difference <laughs> in terms of you. You know, you've uh, you've done well, pretty it's well. Very kind of you to say so. But you if know. you want any tips, do let me know, mate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no, I'm very fond of saying. Um, I, I'm an instinctive actor. In other words, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, really. But, uh... Tell us about some of your early roles, including the film Where Has Poor Mickey Gone and the Christmas single for 10 Days of Christmas. You were a pop star, John Chalice. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, 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 it's all lies, I tell you. No, I did this... I mean, uh, 10 Days of Christmas is something I'm slightly embarrassed about. Uh, really, it was an idea I, I had in Rep, in Chesterfield, the Rep, for heaven's sake, up in Derbyshire. And they were doing a sort of review thing, and I just had this idea of, instead of partridges and um, and um, seven maids are swimming or whatever they do... Um, mm-hmm. I five do gold it, rings! <laughs> five gold rings. I thought we'd do it all with revolting noises instead, you see. So this became a bit of a cause celebre, and, uh, and it went down very well, and there was a... Another actor out there called John Finch, who, who eventually became a bit of a movie star, and uh, and we had a wonderful time doing it. And eventually, it was picked up, and uh, uh, but John didn't want any any more part of it. And uh, and I met another guy in the, in the RSC, 
This is about two years later. And we did it at a sort of a concert down there, and everybody thought it was hilarious. And uh, and a producer got hold of it, MCA, and they decided to record it. And <laughs> Amazing. Do you know that I've been trying to find a copy of it for the show, and also uh, also the film I just mentioned? I can't find it anywhere. Oh, well, no. Uh, where has Paul Mickey gone? That, that is around, so I don't know how you do it. I mean, mm. that was the very early one. That's the first... Uh, movie I'd done, all skating around Soho, uh, being a bit of a yobbo. Um, uh, quite a sensitive yobbo in my in my case. Um, this is with Warren Mitchell. He's playing an old uh, conjurer. Of course. Yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, he was playing an old conjurer. And we were torturing him. Um, I mean, not physically, but, but sort of <laughs> generally screwing up his life. And eventually he said, he said, come, I'll show you a bit of my magic. And he made everybody disappear. It's that's quite sinister. Yeah. Oh, it, oh yeah, it did add a dark side to it. Um, but it was a nice, uh, it was a nice, it was a nice uh, scary story. got to work with the Beatles that must have been both elating and frustrating in equal measure that it didn't happen yeah this was uh, the magical mystery tour and uh, they, the Beatles were doing and uh, the world and his wife went up for it and uh, my agent said well everybody else has been up for it you may as well go up for it so I did mm. and I met um, actually George Harrison wasn't there so it was just a John Paul and Ringo and uh, I thought well, I couldn't believe it you know I'm meeting the Beatles, right at the height of their fame, you know, sort of late 60s. And uh, I got on very well with John Lennon. Um, and one of the reasons for that was because we both, we both loved The Goon Show. And we both did our voices. Didn't you say that your favourite group was The Stones and he agreed with you? Oh yeah, this is this is later. He got on terribly well, and he said, "Have you got a favourite Beatles tune, John?" You know, and I said, "Actually, I prefer the Rolling Stones." Brilliant. And I went, and he went, <laughs> and I thought, "I've blown it, you stupid." But uh, eventually, he, uh, after a long pause, he said, "Actually, I think you're right. I prefer them sometimes too." You know, so, so, I absolutely love that, it. He had that humour, you know, and and he said, "Yeah, come and uh, come and get in the bus. We'll have a blast," you know, and. Uh, but you were you were tied to some theatre. Yeah, right? yeah. I walked out, I walked out of the interview thinking, oh, Christ, I don't believe it. I'm the luckiest man in the world. Mm. But I couldn't oh, do it because wow. I was unavailable. I'd already said yes to a show called The Newcomers, and uh, the dates clashed. Swings and roundabouts, as I oh, say. No, no. Remind me of when you were with David Warner and Ian Holm with, and others trying to simultaneously act on stage in Twelfth Night and catch up with the 1966 World Cup final. How did you manage to do the, the two simultaneously? Well, well, uh, we, had, uh, we had quite a few gaps. Um, there were... Because uh, we were... A bit, I was just playing courtiers, really, uh, most of us um, young people. <laughs> we... Uh, <laughs> Paparazzi, paparazzi things. near us, uh, taking uh, photographs yeah, yeah. as we speak. It's outrageous. Just can't get rid of them. <laughs> and um, such a bore. Yeah, well, uh, it was. We had a matinee, had a matinee of uh, Twelfth Night, and um, so we couldn't watch it, and everyone was gutted. But there was a little uh, electrician at Stratford who, who was a mad football fan. I mean, real fanatic, and uh, he couldn't bear it, so he rigged up um, a chicken wire aerial on the on the outside of the Stratford Theatre. And he fed a line through to a little band room right under the stage. Now then, yes. okay, as the referee looks at his watch, any second now, it will all be over. So we can't do the game. So, so all these actors, you can imagine dressed in Shakespearean costume, <laughs> all speaking like that, because the show's going on upstairs. And of course, it was intensely dramatic, and occasionally you'd, you'd be so engrossed in the game, you think, Christ, I'm off, you know, so. I was supposed to be up on stage, so people were constantly coming and going, rushing up the stairs, and then coming back after their entrance and a few lines sort of breathlessly going, What's this going? What's this going? <laughs> <laughs> you know what happens when you're watching football. 30 seconds by. Our watch and the Germans are going down and they can hardly get up. It's all over, I think. No, it's... 
What about the end? What about the end? Oh, the end, yeah. Well, we had to leave before. Not, the, not the play. <laughs> the end of the game. Uh, no, this this was... Um, yeah, this we couldn't watch the end. England were leading oh. 2-1. And it, could they hang on for the last 10 minutes? But we all had to be on stage for the famous final scene. So, no, can you imagine doing this, trying to concentrate? I mean, we're talking it's about... It's like missing the moon landing, isn't it? Yeah, Stratford. I mean, it's a, it's a serious theatre, this, you know. It's supposed to be very professional. But with no idea what's going on. But everyone was sort of shaking with nerves. And you could hear the people left behind underneath the stage going, Oh, Oh, you know, um, oh, make a brilliant sketch, wouldn't it? But eventually, David Wa- David Warner, who played Aguitreet, came on. He was almost the last man on, and under his breath, he uh, he breathed. They've equalised. <laughs> and you can imagine everybody's face just dropped. Oh. And then the um, the rest of Twelfth Night went very quickly indeed. <laughs> you raced through it <laughs> as we got down the end, and, uh, and of course there was extra time, and, uh, and of course the, uh, the famous story happened. Absolutely, they thought it was all over. It was then. Yeah, <laughs> we, did, we nearly got sacked. <laughs> and here comes Hurst. He's got some fibbler on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. You're listening to a brand new series of SNS Online with today's special guest, John Chalice. And just a reminder that if you want to comment on this or any other show, then please like our Facebook and Twitter pages, unsurprisingly called SNS Online, where you can message us, check out the shows, and keep tabs on future guests. Or you can do so via our email address, which is snsonlineshow at gmail.com. Finally, all our past shows can be enjoyed again, or possibly for the very first time, by going to the SNS Online SoundCloud page. As you were. Now, while we're talking about theatre, let's go through some of the memorable roles you've had on stage, including, it must be said, a plethora of classical roles and some of the amazing actors you work with. I mean, obviously, we've listed some. It's almost like a who's who of the cream of British theatre, reading your books. Oh, yes, I am part of that cream, of course. Uh, the cream always rises to the top. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I've been, I've been very lucky in sort of 50 years. Um, you know, you work with an awful lot of uh, people, and uh, I've been very lucky to work with some... I mean, Stratford is just, just wonderful to work with people like Ian Holm and uh, Dinah Rigg mm. uh, was down there. David Warner, of course. Um, the, the, one of the most famous Hamlets ever, that was, the Peter Hall's Hamlet. Mm. And um, later on, oh, Anthony Quayle. I did something with Anthony Quayle. Uh, Peter Wingard, I was, mm. I was in one of those. Joanna Lumley and... Oh, you now let's talk about Joan Lumley. Of course, you were looking up her skirt on the New Avengers panel. The New Avengers, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we all were. Um, it wasn't just me. It was uh, she was she was perched on a table. It was very difficult to miss it. She was uh, sitting on a table with her with her with her gorgeous legs drawn up, and all our squaddies sit down there, you know. And that was the whole thing. And of course, she, I'm sure she understood. Yeah, she's it's all in the name of art. She toyed with us. She was trying to find some. Um, Rotten apple in the barrel. Because there was one of us, I, can't, I think it was a guy called Leo Dolan, who was up to no good. And so she was, as I say, toying with us and uh, trying to get us to uh, to drop our guard. <laughs> that was the scene. But it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was a wonderful moment, yeah. Fantastic. Um, you were also in uh, one of our previous guest plays, uh, Terence Frisbee's of a Bandwagon with a glorious Peggy Mount. Um, oh, and, of course, Terence then wrote Lucky Fella, which starred David Jason, which was almost like a reverse Del Boy thing. It was like, almost like a, a run-up to, to the real thing. Yes, yes, there were a lot of those ideas about. Um, I remember the Bandwagon very well, and uh, uh, there was a Mermaid Theatre, and it was supposed to transfer, but then... Uh, I think they wanted Terence uh, Frisbee to change the ending and he refused to do it, so mm. it never went in. But he should have done, because it was... I mean, it was of his time. Yeah. And the, one of the big jokes was that uh, everybody on stage, except the men, of course, uh, were pregnant. You know, th- and uh, so it's, it's those stories and uh, about five women in the same house, all pregnant, and, who, you know, who were the fathers, nobody quite knew. And I played a sort of roving reporter, rather like you, you know, in the back room. Here we are in a very ordinary house in New Cross Gate. But in fact, things are far from ordinary here. You know, it's one of those parts. And there were lots of us in it. There was quite a big cast all playing sort of cameo roles. Um, 
I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And it was a shame that it uh, didn't go any further. And uh, but later on, I uh, I got to play um, There's a Girl in My Soup. Mm-hmm. And I played um, I played the, um, the eponymous uh, hero's friend in that. So it was lovely. I mean, Terence uh, Terence was was as I say of his time and uh, very successful. But uh, but I think he was he, he found it very hard to um, um, you know to listen to other people about this stuff. It's a shame. Okay, interesting. Some people some people some people are just like that. I think. Mm. So let's talk about your connection with Tom Stoppard. Um, obviously, touring in South Africa as well uh, sounds very exciting. Well, yes, I, uh, it was an extraordinary time in my life. That uh, I'd, I'd actually been through quite a quite a difficult time in that I got become a bit disillusioned about it, and uh, and I thought oh, I'm never I'm never going to get to where I want to be as an actor, and um, so I'll, d- I'll do something else. But it's just part of my temperament. That's what I, if things aren't working, I tend to go and do something else. And uh, I'd always been interested in gardening and so on. So uh, I opened a garden centre, as you do. Um, with some uh, reprobates who I'd been working sort of unofficially for around the back of his wife's hairdressers. But that's another story. Um, and we bought the shop front. Didn't you time this with the drought of 76? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it was I'm very, sorry uh, to uh, laugh. I didn't time it deliberately. It was no. just unlucky. <laughs> and uh, you couldn't get a plant in the ground. And mm. there was a hosepipe ban and uh, it all went... Um, I remember it well. Of course you do, yes. yes. Mm. No, it, it, was, it was awful. I learned an awful lot, though. And got very brown. I have to say, we did a lot of outside work, sort of paving and stuff like that. But mm. then that presented its own problems, you know, because the heat was uh, terrific in 1976. Um, and uh, I'd sort of, it all went pear shaped, and um, I finished up having to um, uh, repay the loan uh, the bank gave us. And then I got a job in a fringe theatre, um, written by, uh, plays written by Vashlav Havel. And his friend, was a man called Tom Stoppard, uh-huh. who was who was Czech by birth, and he came to see it. Uh, it was the Orange Tree, f- a famous fringe theatre in London, and he liked what I did. And he came out to me afterwards and said, uh, "Would you like to be in one of my plays?" And I went, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> but, but 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 you're Tom Stoppard. <laughs> yes, I know. He said, "But um, the only thing is, um, I've been asked to send the play to South Africa," mm. and I went, "Eh." Of course, apartheid on that right? Well, exactly, and um, it was uh, it was not a correct thing to do, really, as far as our union was concerned. But um, I thought this was such a terrific opportunity, um, and I wanted to do. It. I was very excited, and never been out of Europe in my life, you know, mm-hmm. and to be in Africa and to be part, to be in the midst of that one of the great talking points in our time. I thought mm-hmm. it would be a fantastic experience. And I said, I said to Tom Sabat, I said, you know, there's so many people against stuff going out there. What, what happened in your case? And he said, I talked to my friend Ethel Fugard, famous South African playwright, and uh, said that uh, I, um, I'd been asked to send the play Dirty Linen. Uh, do you think I should? And Ethel Fugard said, yes, definitely. He said, because information is light and this will open a few doors, windows to people. And uh, we, I mean, that's a, that's a yeah, that's yeah, a good reason, yeah. yeah. yeah but but in term in terms of uh, this country, everyone was saying, "Oh, if you go out to South Africa, you are a supporter of apartheid." And I mm. said, "No, I'm not." Yeah, you know. And I I finished up learning so much and hearing so many stories, and finished up writing a play about it called "Cut the Grass So We Can See the Elephants," which went. There's a lot of grass in your life, isn't yeah, there? Lots of grass. <laughs> not not that sort of grass, thank God. Um, <laughs> But it finished up uh, being done in uh, four different countries. Yeah, New York, wasn't it? The New York cities? it finished up, and yeah, and it was because there was so much information in it, and that was when I first learnt, I suppose, that I could tell stories. And I finished up. Uh, it was good for me because I played all the parts, all the male parts. I tried to play the women's part, and something about it didn't work <laughs> quite. But I uh, you didn't do a Ronnie Barker thing when you got half the dress on. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, the half and half thing. Yeah, it would have been wonderful. But uh, oh. but no, that was and then uh, I took over the uh, uh, the, the leading part in the West End, uh, Dirty Linen, and uh, and then became part of something called the British American Repertory Company, and it went Fantastic. to Broadway. Fantastic! And isn't Dirty right. Linen the? Because I know you had a difficult relationship with your father, but wasn't that the one time he gave you a a, a wondrous compliment that almost had yeah. you in tears? Very late on. Very late on, uh, my mother dragged him to see it because she knew 
that he'd like it, because it was about his area, you see. It was about special committees in the House of Commons and all the shenanigans that go on. And he loved it. And I, you know, I bought him a copy of the script and, uh, and gave it to him as uh, at Christmas or something. He said, oh, no, well, I, I don't know, you know. It's, well, I was asleep most of the time, you know. Uh, but my mother said he absolutely loved it. It was on the edge of his seat, you know. Um, and eventually, you know, we were alone together and he was in a bit of a state. And he said, how, how do you do that? I said, what? He said, well, get up on stage and do do that. I said, well, that's that's what I do. He said, that's amazing. He said, I was, I was so proud of you. I said, thanks, Dad. Then he That's got lovely. Up, he, he got up, went out the back door, and uh, didn't come back for about two hours. Mm. He just couldn't. He was there, but he, he mm. just couldn't bring himself to, to talk about it. I think that was a little chink of light he was showing you. Oh, you know? sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is nice. It's yeah, good yeah. to have that. So let's turn to telly now. Uh, apparently you played a, a Del Boy-esque character in the BBC's brief answer to Coronation Street for newcomers. Yes, I did. There was a character called Harry Kappa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Flash Harry Kappa. Flash Harry Kappa. He was a Flash Harry too. He had a big, big American-style car. And he was a rag-trade man. Uh-huh. Larger-than-life uh, character. And um, finished up sort of seducing one of the uh, regulars in it, you know, a young girl, sweeping her off in his American car somewhere. Great scandal around, but but you know it's one of those you know said I darling all right yeah lovely you know and nobody had ever seen anything like him before and he wore flash clothes and uh, (laughs) and it was brilliant it was I I loved it it was the the first television part I ever did ah right and And, and you working that's what that's what I did that's what I signed for. Which meant I couldn't uh, work with the Beatles. Yeah, right. And apparently, you're working with TV director Paddy Russell, who's obviously very well known in the industry, oh, yeah, did lots yeah. of Doctors and stuff. But she had to sort of guide you towards a more television way of acting, because you were so used to projecting. Yes, oh, yes. I don't, I'm, well, I've always been a bit over the top, you know, really. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's me, you know. And, uh, and she said, You've never been on television before, have you? And I, I said, uh, No. Because, because I, I got the job in an interview situation. Where it was all quite low key, but of course, as soon as we started rehearsing, I was all over the place, waving my arms about because I was wearing these colourful clothes. And you know, he's large and large. Well, I think what? I love it. Far too much because I got a very mobile face. So she just kept me behind after re- after rehearsals, you know, like detention after room. school. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And she said, and she 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 got me down and down and down, you know, and 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 sort of filled me with this this idea that to. You know, you could squirt it out with the same intensity, but you have to be very careful mm-hmm. because the camera is right on you, showing you warts and all. Mm-hmm. And uh, and of course, you mustn't distract from what else is going on. You know, and that was that was a hard lesson to learn. But um, but it but it, it did teach me a lot. So I'm very grateful to her. Fantastic. So obviously, Paddy Russell, that links us into Doctor Who. Are there any more? No. This is unique now. Priceless, as you are no doubt aware. So what's to stop this breaking open like the other one? It's quite safe. There's temperature. I was going on a little journey. You must have something here to keep it cool. We have thermal containers. Get one. Working with the legend that is Tom Baker and oh, the, yeah. the, the uh, late lamented um, Liz Sladen. Um, yeah. uh, wow, was that the Seeds of Doom? That, I mean, that was a crack. I'm a massive Doctor Who fan, by the way, just oh, to yeah. let you know. I'm a little bit of a rabid, slavering fan. Oh, so dear. just to warn you, Scorby. So sorry. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, that was. Uh... I've got this script for you when Scorby survives. Would you read it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a. Yeah. No, that was something else that happened after the Garden Centre thing. I was. Um... Were you growing crinoids? <laughs> no, no, I wish, wish I had. Uh, taking over the world. No, I... Um, uh, uh, it was a director I worked for before. I'd done the Sweeney with him. Douglas Canfield, his name oh, was. Oh, of course, yes. And he employed me four or five times in various uh, guises. Uh, always pretty horrible parts. So you obviously saw me as a, a bit of a thug and a villain. 
and I got this dark old face, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, he um, was six parter with Tom Baker. We had such such fun. Now then, Doctor, let's have the truth. Where's the plant that came out of the pod? It grew in the bed that was part of the garden close to the house that Jack, Jack built. I'm not a patient man, Doctor. Well, your candor does you credit. However, you're too late. What do you mean? Odd things have been happening. Odd and dangerous. I don't think you would understand. Try me. All right. At its simplest, the man who went mad is no longer a man in any sense you'd recognize. Well, if he's not a man, what is he? An alien life form. I said I wanted some straight answers, Doctor. Liz, uh, as you say, sorely missed. You know, she was uh, she was lovely. Everybody loved her. And I can, you know, can't believe she's one of those people you can't believe she's gone. You know? Absolutely. Um, and of course, you featured in um, one of Auntie's bloomers, the, the classic one when you're trying to get into a house or something, and the door's supposed to be oh, locked. Yes. And it wasn't. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Yes, I remember. I remember that's right. We, you we said a running, rude word. Running away from the crinoid and trying to get into this, uh, and uh, the door just jammed, and we all went. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what I said. What did I say? Something. Like um, it starts with S, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, the the door's locked. Door's locked. It's open. Shit. One thing I wanted to mention because you you said something very interesting about seeing your grandmother, who you were very close to, who waved to you near your house, and then when going into the house, you discovered that she had died that morning, and this was before you even had found that out. Now yeah. Elizabeth Sladen had very similar experience to you when she was in a, 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 a theatre in Liverpool, um, and uh, she saw somebody walk past who she knew quite well and waved yeah. heartily, yeah, yeah. and then found out later that he had died like a couple of days earlier. Now that that's really interesting to me because you know unless you're just making it up, which I, obviously you're not. How how does how do you get around explaining something like that? Is it because you're more sensitive as actors? Is there energy? Do you think that that exists? Floats around a bit after death or something. I think I think um, I think some people are sort of uh, more prone to it than others. I, but I've always had premonitions. I mean, not on a, reg- not on a fantastic regular basis. Mm. I mean, these latest ghastly weather and the and the strong gales. We had a 17th century barn which doesn't belong to me. It's actually out, uh, re- literally in our backyard, but it belongs to the farmer. And it was creaking and it was leaning and uh, the beams had. Parted because he wasn't looking after it. Simple as that. I tried to buy it from him, he wouldn't sell it. Um, and I rang him and I said, "Look, this is going to fall down." I rang the council, I rang buildings at risk, everybody. And I was away um, doing a couple of shows, I think. And uh, and I suddenly woke up five o'clock in the morning. You know, it's like when you wake up suddenly and you don't mm. know why. Have I just woke up. And the first thing that came into my head was the barn. And I'm thinking, God, I hope the barn's all right. Anyway, I went back to sleep. We drove back home, and there it was, collapsed. So I had a premonition that something's going to happen. How interesting. It's I mean, horrible same, as well. Yeah, the same as my, uh, my grandmother, who I was very close to. And I know I, know, I saw her. I, Did you just see her clear as day, just normally, yeah. as you would see any, anybody else? I'd gone to my parents' house, and she waved, and I waved back. She went up the side gate, which I thought was a bit, a bit strange that she went in again because you would have expected her to, to wait there and on the path and because uh, I'd just come back from work, working mm. in state agency at the time. And that's such a shock of my life when uh, mm. my mother met me. Um, but, you know, rather comforting as well to think that, you know, clearly if you saw her as plain as day, you know, you yeah. weren't even, it wasn't even in your head that because you knew she had died. I think that's, I think that's really interesting and also very comforting because <laughs> clearly it's implying that, I'm not saying there's a god or whatever but I, it just implies that there's more going on that we don't know about and that that's that's quite nice yes oh, i think i think it is yes i mean uh, human beings think they're omnipotent and they know mm. everything and they can prove everything and da 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 but there are certain things still out there that uh, are diff- very difficult to explain something in the air sns online presents the soundtrack of your life 
we do a, a feature called The Soundtrack of Your Life, where you get a chance to pick a track um, mm. which either might resonate um, professionally, personally, or just because it makes your feet tap, all, all three. And I'm mm. sort of jumping this on you a little bit, but uh, there are so many tunes out there, but there is anything in particular that might, um, might uh, you know... Uh-huh. Well, I'm an, I'm an old uh, rock and roller, you know, so I love a lot of Chuck Berry stuff and, um, and later on The Stones, of course, and I sort of grew up. With the Stones, we're all about the same age, really. Um, and I first saw them in the early 60s in uh, Richmond at the um, Crawdaddy Club. Of course, you met a Mick Jagger later, didn't you? Uh, no, I've never met Mick. I, oh, um, I thought you did. I must have no, read that no, one. No, I met, uh, I met Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman. Oh. Uh, so the rhythm section. <laughs> 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 no, but I've never, I've never met... Uh, I never met Brian Jones and I never met uh, Keith Richard or Mick Jagger. I'm still hoping to one day, but um, anything by them, I suppose, honky tonk women, you know, no, that's that was their time, I think. Mm. You know, well, were... should we go for honky tonk women? Yeah, because I mean, I, you know, you, so you, were, you were a little bit of a player back in your day, John. Yes, it must I be did, so. I did, yes, I did aspire to um, <laughs> to all that, but I never quite got there really. Um, it was no, it's just the sort of the dirtier, dirtier bit of old blues. It is the better, really. I met a So let's talk about the lead-up to Only Fools and Horses, because uh, you were playing a similar sort of character in Scissors and Smith, which, which I think you sort of drew on a little bit to create Boise. Yeah, I, uh, I was actually in America at the time, and um, nearly, nearly um, I had opportunities, I thought, to stay out there, and I thought that's where the future lay, but things weren't quite working out, and uh, my agent's going... Uh, going mad trying to find me because he said you've been offered a part in a new comedy series and uh, you're going to come and do it or uh, are you staying out there make up your mind because I terribly indecisive um, and I couldn't make up my mind it's so a real crossroads really but um, things weren't quite working out and I thought I'd better keep my hand in here in case um, things didn't work out 
And I'd run out of money, to be honest. Um, so I came back to do an episode of uh, something that turned out to be Citizen Smith. Mm. And, of course, Citizen Smith uh, was written by John Sullivan. And I had to play a policeman, another policeman. And I thought, what can I do? It's a bit different. And uh, I just remember this guy in the pub who had this curious way of talking. Ah. Do you know? Um, all that. It's a very pompous... Um, and so I, 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 so I endowed this policeman with a few of those characteristics, including the voice. You are Inspector Colin Humphreys of the Metropolitan Police. Uh, yes, sir. Would you tell the court, Inspector, of the events that led to the arrest of Mr Lynch? Uh, yes, sir. <clears throat> I arrived at the Vigilante public house at approximately 8.30pm on the night of uh, Thursday the 7th. The bar was sparsely crowded, one or two early evening diners, a few regulars and a bunch of down-and-outs. <laughs> and then John Sullivan came up after and he said, he said, I really, he said, I really like what you've done with that. He said, I'm going to try and use it again one day. Much like the Tom Stoppard thing, you know, just luckily he got to see me doing something like that. And that's how uh, Boise started. But, but I had no idea it was going to happen at all. It was, it was about a year later I suddenly got this script. Yeah. Will you come and play this? There's only one scene, um, this cameo role. But it made me laugh a lot, so of course I... And I was doing a lot of lot of episodes of lots of things in those days. And, um, did you do the bill, by any chance? The bill, I did the bill. Everybody does a bill. Yeah. <laughs> Man, uh, a bus driver went crackers and smashed up his bus. Oh, okay. eventually drove it into somebody's front garden. As you do. He kept running away and the police couldn't um, couldn't catch him. It's quite, quite funny <laughs> and rather tragic. <laughs> You're listening to John Chalice on SNS Online. Stick a pony in me pocket. I'll fetch the suitcase from the van. Cause if you are the best, but you don't ask questions, then brother, I'm your man. Cause where it all comes from is a mystery. Four? I didn't know you were good at maths, though. <laughs> I thought you were bluffing. Oh, no. No, 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 Del Boy. No, you're Nelly. I thought he was bluffing. You burk. <laughs> what did you have, Del? Two pair. <laughs> two pair? You went all that way on two wrong pair? I thought he was bluffing. Well, he bloody well wasn't, wasn't he? <laughs> Fools and horses, let's um, talk about your memories about, you know, working with David Jason and, and the whole... Going oh, on location nightmare. and everything. Nightmare! <laughs> I'm sure he'd say the same. <laughs> no, I, no, luckiest thing in the world, really. Uh, David, um, uh, David is... Uh, as Del Boy, I mean, you can't imagine anybody else doing it. But it, in fact, it was only third choice to do it. Uh, I think somebody didn't want to do it and uh, somebody else wasn't available... Well, Jim Broadbent was, was mooted. Jim Broadbent, I think, couldn't do it. But um, producer-director Ray Butt had seen David in open all hours and also seen him doing something else, and he was convinced he was the right man. Uh, but John Sullivan didn't. But Ray took John to see, um, to see David, and they got him in to read with Nick Lindhurst, who had already been cast. And it just happened. Psh, the magic, you know... Um, and of course, he, he just uh, just became one of the great iconic uh, anti-heroes of all time. I think. What are you doing? What do you mean? What am I doing? I'm picking up my winnings, though. That's what I'm doing. Oh no, 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 me old mate. No, no, not on your Nelly. You know the rules of the game. All cards must be shown before the winnings are collected. Leave it out, will you, Del? You've only got two pairs. No, no, Trig. No, it's all right. Let Del have his little moment. Come on, Del. Let's see your two pair. Oh, I've got a pair of aces. Yeah. And I've got another pair of aces. <laughs> everybody aspires. That was what's so clever. It's because everybody could identify with it. You know, that trying to get up there and yeah. to be respectable, to, to have more money, then you get respect, you know, and all that. And, but Everybody. also have, having such a lot of heart as well. I mean, yeah. he's actually a, a very, in, in a weird sort of way, quite a moral character when it oh, came oh, yeah. down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, he'd take the knocks uh, for other people yeah. and uh, sacrifice himself. And uh, and that's what people identified with too. Plus that ambition that... Uh, that's where everybody wanted to be, really. Yeah. I mean, you know... Um, and of course, he never quite there, and he kept falling off, you know, getting up there and then falling down again, and picking himself up and having another go. That aspirational thing. I hope the old boy might have something up his sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, oh, look at all that lovely money! I told, eh? told you I could do it, eh, didn't I? Oh, well eh? done. <laughs> well done, Del. Thanks. Nicely played. Where'd you get those four bloody aces from? Same place you got them kings. <laughs> I knew you was cheating, Boise. Oh, yeah. How? Because that wasn't the hand that I dealt you. <laughs> and was it weird, coming from being, like, shall we, shall we say, a jobbing actor to being really very well recognised for a particular role? And, you know, was that sort of, in equal measures, good and a bit tricky? Oh, uh, fine. I... For me, it's what you you dream of, dream of happening. You know, you don't know how you're going to deal with it uh, until it happens. Uh, but you know, we we're all very proud of it, and it's not just to me, but uh, everybody had the same experience. You know, suddenly people coming up, clapping them on the back, and shaking their hands, and and so on, and uh, wanting to wanting you to do the character. And um, it was very gratifying, really, that you'd help create something that uh, meant so much to people. Mm. But it was the show as a whole, I think. Oh, yeah, um, it's an ensemble show. Because the supporting characters were just as important, I think, as, mm. the, as the leading characters towards the end. That's why they were in every show. Yeah. Yes, well, I've got to go. The host is a fellow Mason. And mind you, last year's do was a good laugh. Well, I heard it all ended up in a punch shop. Yes, it did. But uh, during the struggle, Marlene got a whack in the nose. <laughs> and you did nothing about it, did you? Well, how could I? You threw the first punch. <laughs> Were you injured? No, fortunately, her makeup cushioned the blow. <laughs> I'm getting tired of the city, all the noise and the mess. Want a new beginning and a new address. Why don't we run away to somewhere where the birds still sing? On the green, green grass and a country house In a place where my face ain't known And in the green, green grass it'll come to pass We'll have somewhere to call our home We'll have somewhere to call our home When you and your, your wife Carol decided to up sticks and live in the country That was the inspiration for John Sutherland to create your very own spin-off for Green Green Grass Filmed at your gaff Yeah, my gaff, yeah Your gaff, mate We missed, uh, we, uh, we didn't know whether we were going to um, enjoy the country or not Well, we, we knew we'd enjoy the country But uh, trying to look after a, an 800-year-old property was something we hadn't really experienced at at all and it looks very grand, you know, because you've suddenly got all these rooms. But, of course, they're full of holes and the plaster's falling okay. down. So there's an awful lot of work to do. Never done anything like it before. But but the, the clincher really was that my wife had a family connection to it, going right back to... Um, Isn't that amazing that, that oh. you found that out? Well, it's just, again, it's those coincidences that um, somebody sent us the details. We went, God, that's fantastic. It must do big. It's much, you know, it's beyond us. But we said we'd just go and have a look because it does look fantastic, you know, really medieval and French. And and then to find out that uh, Carol's uh, family connection, dating right back to the dissolution of the monasteries, and we went, it's fate, somebody's led us here. Um, so we've got to have a go. And we were quite prepared after a year to go, oh, it's too much, we can't, you know, we can't. But 20 years later, we're still there. And the pipes are burst. And <laughs> but it's, a, I mean, we get to see that every, every time we watch, watch yeah. the show, which is fantastic. Right. Look at that, Marlene. What a beautiful sight. Yeah. Nature. In all its glory. You know, ever since we moved down to the country, the stress has just oozed out of my body. <laughs> yes, I think this is the best move we ever made. Well, we didn't have much choice, really, did we? What with the Driscoll brothers about to blow your brains out. <laughs> yes, I suppose, in a way, we should be grateful to them. 
I'm not going to send him a thank you card, though. <laughs> no, I had a 16th birthday party and John Sullivan came to it. And uh... Was that the uh, was that the Kettners? The what? Kettners? Because I had either 50th do there. I'm sure we had to do oh, it no, at the K- same place. Kettners, it was the launch of the book. Kettners. That was it. No, I, I had a 60th birthday party and uh, and John uh, John and uh, Tony Dow, the director, and uh, two or three other members of the cut, David, David came. And uh, John just came out to me and said, I've had a bit of an idea. I thought, where have I heard that before? Anyway, aye, aye. nothing happened. Two years later, you know, Sue Holderness, who plays Marlene and myself, were doing a play in Brighton, and he came to see it. And he took us out to tea, and he pitched the idea of the green, green grass. And he said, you're just sitting there looking at me, completely out of context, this bloody great house, and about 200 people, you know, locals and... Uh, relations and I've got to say it's really very funny because at the time I think I just was not around much to see TV but I've been catching up with it recently obviously for this and um, it's been making me chuckle seriously oh good well that's very good (laughs) (laughs) no no uh, and uh, and of course so many things had happened to me uh, since I was down there and I tell John a lot of stories and a lot of these he reworked and sort of put into the series so it became about and and it was all filmed down there which Mm. which I just couldn't believe so the whole community was involved as well, and uh, and it was sort of half a hit, I suppose. We did it four episodes, uh, four series. Mm. Supposed to do a fifth, and then uh, the credit crunch hit, and then uh, the new regime came into the BBC and said, um, <coughs> yeah, "I think we'll, um, I don't think we'll do that. It's rather expensive." <laughs> but you got some good guest stars in it. I mean, George went from uh, Cheers. Yeah, yeah, outrageous. That, that was a, that was a big thrill. Yeah. Uh, if these walls could talk, what a tale they'd tell. Although I wouldn't advise you to listen, ma'am. I'm pleased to meet you. I've always said all this old place needed was the smile of a beautiful woman. <laughs> and who knows, one day it may happen. Was he nice? He seems like a... I oh, don't yeah, know. He seems like, yeah. No, I, I, loved, I loved working with him because he's the, the other end of the scale to me, I suppose. As a, as a voice of this slightly larger-than-life character. But, of course, he... He just sits there in a heap at the end of the bar and <laughs> cheers. Afternoon, everybody. Oh, oh. And he mum, just, just mumbles. But he gets to kill the lines. He gets to kill the lines, yeah, that's right. So that, that juxtaposition, I think, worked, well, mm. I felt it worked uh, very well. Mm. We had June Whitfield, of course. Oh, big wonderful. Thrill. It was towards the end of the war and strange things was happening. Yeah, I've heard. Did you say anything about my mum and the US 7th Fleet? I wasn't going to say anything about your mum and the US 7th Fleet. What about me and the US 7th Fleet? (laughs) Nothing. Carry on. Well, as I was saying... It was was smashing. That was a wonderful time. You're listening to John Chalice on SNS Online. Still trying to write your autobiography, are you? Uh, yes, and it's more than just an autobiography. It's a life manual. <laughs> this could be an important book for future generations. In years to come, people are going to read this manuscript and decide to take a... What do you call it? Overdose? <laughs> Did you find it cathartic uh, writing not only an autobiography, but such an honest one? I mean, acknowledging your struggles with early relationships, your parents, and the constant struggle of, of, of what well, being a you know jobbing actor, um, carving out the career. Well, uh, that's just how it came out. Um, better than therapy, I would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was saying that I uh, I met a therapist, not not uh, unofficially. I didn't sort of go go to a shrink or anything, but mm. somebody knew somebody because I was going through a bad time with my. Uh, with my father and and so on, you know, it's a sort of a familiar story for so many people. Yeah. I said, "What do I do?" But he won't talk to me. He won't this. Mm. Um, and he was ill. Of course, he had Alzheimer's, um, which I didn't really know at the time. And he said, "What he said?" I said, "He said, I'll tell you what will help is write a letter to your father. You don't have to give it to him, but just write it out." And I did, and it did help. And he was absolutely right because I'd never actually expressed it, you know. And so when I came to the um, in autobiography, I remembered that, and I wrote about things, you know, um, also about my mother and my mother and my father and all, all sorts of things. Uh, and the more I wrote, the more I thought of, and the more it reminded me of something else. And mm. 
I was supposed to finish it in a year, but I, I didn't. Oh. I, so that's why it's in two parts. <laughs> Do you feel you've come out of it the other end a lot more peaceful as a, as, as a person and, and, and tranquil, if you like? I mean, you, yeah, you, yeah, you're I living think, in a wonderful place, think, wonderful wife. Yeah, I think, I've, um, I think I've, yes, I've been very lucky. You know, it doesn't stop me being uh, pretty anxious about the way the world is going. Um, I feel quite anxious about that, I have to say, and also yeah. quite anxious about when my pipes burst and there's water all over the floor. Oh my God! Um, um, hey, but, uh, no, 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 fine. No, it's you know, just look back on my life. I think you know, I've um, not bad at all. No, I've been. I know I've been. I've been quite lucky, yeah. but 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 I'm a firm believer in you make your own luck. You know. And, oh, uh, absolutely. And I always say to people, you know, if you feel something, you feel you want to do something, do it. Don't worry about possible consequences. Because if you don't, you'll be thinking about it for the rest of your life. Because, yeah. I mean, what struck me when reading the books was that uh, I, I would su suggest to any budding actor to read your books first and that they still feel as enthusiastic uh, uh, at the end of them because obviously it, sh it shows lean times as well yeah. as, as, the, as the highs. I think yeah. it's a really good training ground just to get an idea yeah. of what it's yeah. like. Yeah, I think it's either in you or it's not, you know, um, and that that need to perform for some reason, say, hey, look at me, aren't I great, you know, aren't I clever at doing this? And, this, and that's how I got through school, because as I say, I didn't do much work at all. I was quite good at sport, but again, that's a sort of performance-related thing. And I loved playing cricket with the school and rugby and, and soccer. I was good, quite a good tennis player when I was about 14. So as I had that natural ability in sport, which was, which was good, I'm very glad I did. Because I, is, I do remember boys at school who had absolutely no talent whatsoever in that area and no interest either, but they were forced to do it. And I thought it was such a mistake. I thought it was a mistake at the time. It was so miserable. I was one of those people who got forced to do it. Did you? I just wanted to chat about last night's telly, you know, and have a nice cup of tea. <laughs> is that so awful? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it's not going to get you much of a living, that's the only thing. <laughs> well, I mean, it, no, it, it would because of what, of what you do. Mm. But, uh, but at the time... I remember, I, I remember some of the boys in in tears because they knew they were going to get, you know, beaten beaten up at rugby. There was a couple of boys there who were bullied so unmercifully, you know, that they got beaten up by their own side as well as ours. Bloody hell, that's, that's know, tough, I, isn't it? That's I, tough. I, at the time, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I mean, I wasn't like that. But, but they, the trouble was, they were so they were so good at studying that made them even more unpopular. <laughs> if you were you good can't at, bloody if you win. Were good at sport, you were you, you sort of made you slightly untouchable, particularly if you were in all, all school teams. I, and the fact that I could uh, get up there and impersonate people and uh, and and make people laugh. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so that, that's humour is a good way of getting. That's how I got out of a lot yeah. of beatings yeah, yeah. at school. <laughs> Scratch and sniff. With Nick Randall. So finally, we come to Only Fools and Boise, which is why we're here at the theatre. Um, how did you gather all this together? Did you just suddenly thought, hey, you know what, my life would make a good show, which I agree with. Well, I, uh, I actually, it was somebody I knew who was an uh, um, entertainment officer on a cruise ship. And uh, we were chatting away, and he said, oh, people come on and they give us lectures, you know, and, uh, and sometimes people come on and talk about their life, you know, and uh, sort of 45 minutes... You know, uh, just before before dinner and then uh, after dinner to uh, to another audience and so on. It's 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 a real gas. You get a you know you get a free cruise for it. You can bring your missus or your partner or whatever it is, and uh, and you you also get get a bit of money to spend. And you get a cabin on the outside, you know, with the balcony. What's not to like? And I went. Well, okay. So I went on and just told a few stories about um, Only Fools and. Uh, and also my my life, and uh, I seemed to go down very well. It was the audience packed; it was about six and a half hundred people, both shows. And then so I got asked back to do another one, another one, da da da. And I did about eight cruises altogether. And then I gradually, as I say, it started to evolve and extend. And we finish up now with two lots of three quarters of an hour, different, uh, with an interval. <laughs> <laughs> which amounts to about a, a two-hour show, you know. And also, of course, it's an opportunity to, uh, you know, to give people a chance to look at the books, mm. which I can dedicate to them personally. That's the difference. Not it's only not only your autobiographies, but novels as well. You've written. 
Yes, yes, these are, these are these are novels again. There are stories that I heard which led to the green green grass. You know that it's that connection. So I wrote uh, wrote a lot of those down, and also we just finished a, a book about the house and garden, the history mm. of the house, and the fact that one of the reasons we uh, moved to uh, Wigmore was to create a garden. So it's a story of that garden, our story about how we found it, and. Uh, the history of the house. You know. Well, you must plug your website while we're talking. Oh, yes, yes, my website, my website. What is my website? What a good question. <laughs> I think it's wigmorehall.com. Yes. No, wigmorebooks.com. There we go, wigmorebooks.com. Yes, yes. Anybody's, Check it out, folks. Yes, anybody's interested in uh, in the books, just uh, get onto that. And uh, and also, I think it's got a, I'm not sure, has it got a list of where the show's going? Absolutely. And just to say, well, while we're talking about your shows, I saw your show in um, late 2016. Almost got mugged on the way home, by the way, so thanks for that. What? <laughs> yeah, in Colchester. Um, and it was brilliant. It was so funny and engaging, and you linked clips and music as well. Uh-huh. And you were great. So oh, anybody well, who hasn't seen it yet who's got a chance to check him out, man. Well, that's very kind of you, and I can only agree with that. Yes. One of the great things about the show is I get to meet people afterwards, you know, and say, hello, thank you for watching the show, and, uh, and hopefully sign a few books. Yeah, <laughs> and we get to do a little Q&A with you as well, I yeah, think, on each show yeah. as well. So it's, it's well worth it. Yeah. Well, we're almost done for today's show. But just to say that if you're looking to catch John's hilarious and revealing 90-minute live one-man stage turn in Only Fools and Boise, and trust me, I've seen it and it's brilliant, the list of dates and venues can be found by going to wigmorebooks.com, where you can also purchase both his autobiographies and novels. His 2019 season of shows begins on Friday the 15th of February in Milton Mowbray, ending at the West Midlands in Bilston on Monday the 11th of November. No less than 38 UK venues are covered, so he's going to be a busy boy. And, most importantly to you, there's likely an Only Fools and Boise coming soon at a venue near you. (laughs) John Chalice, thank you so much. Good luck for your show tonight. It only remains for me to give you your celebrity goodie bag, and as you're John Chalice, you get an extra bonusy big one including <laughs> lovely chocolates and uh, drink there's um, all flavours of wine um, cheese and onion and smoky bacon and stuff like oh, that's, that that's wonderful can you come to the next show absolutely I'll, <laughs> come, I'll come everyone god that's so I'll, I'll generous thank you so much no gosh. problem at all mate How good exciting. luck for tonight and thank you so much okay great pleasure Bill. I drove along the 